You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Okay, there we go. All right. Now, with all of that out of the way, hopefully that's all the distraction that happens. Hopefully I have no other bad habits that detract from the word. But uh, I wanted to start, just ask if you've ever been in a real lose-lose decision situation. Say, lightheartedly, first little lighthearted example. Say you've been offered the job opportunity of a lifetime, but you would have to relocate halfway around the world. If you take the job, you lose close connection and everyday contact with your family and your friends, but if you don't take the job, you lose out on the career opportunity that will never ever come around again. So either way, you're losing something valuable. Now in this situation, you also gain something valuable either way. So uh, consider this situation. A naval captain is sailing the high seas and an enemy ship approaches. The enemy ship is bigger, it's faster, it has a larger crew, and it will capture this naval captain and take all of his naval intelligence to gain an upper hand in the war. The captain has two choices. He can either try to outrun the other ship and eventually be captured, or he can sink his own ship and stop the enemy from taking him and his intelligence alive. In the one scenario, he may possibly end up keeping his life um, being captured, but he would give up valuable information that would cost the war. In the other, he loses his life for his country, but protects the war-winning intelligence. Now in Esther 4, similar to these situations above, um, difficult decisions must be made. The Jews have been put between a rock and a hard place with very few viable options. Esther's situation is one of these classic lose-lose decision points between either putting her faith into action and dying or not acting and dying. But for, um, for God's people in dire situations, what, what are we supposed to do? What can we do when every single situation, every choice seems terrible? But God, being sovereign over all, provides guidance for his people when they are in tough situations. There's always a proper response for God's people that's born out of faith. The right thing to do may be costly in this life, but God's people, no matter what happens here on earth, have an inheritance that is imperishable and never fading, and nothing can take that away. Nonetheless, the question remains, what can the faithful do in dire situations when it appears that every available recourse has negative consequences to the person or to those around them? Let's pray as we get into Esther 4 and 5. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful summer day and the opportunity for uh, all of us here at Redemption Church to gather together in one service, to sing your praise, to lift your name high, and to dig into your word. I pray, Lord, through my broken words, speak. Bring us to your word and Uh, Give us the encouragement, the conviction, the message that you would have for us today. Soften our hearts, convict us, and draw us ever closer to yourself. Lord, in our weakness, you are made strong. Through my weak words, 
Act powerfully and open up your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if we'll remember from last week, the situation in the Persian Empire at this point for the Jews is very, very bleak. Chapter 3 ended with a horrible decree being issued at the hands of Haman, the Agagite, enemy of the Jews. Chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 say, Letters were sent by, the, by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. So, the Jews in Persia, in Susa, uh, all across the Persian Empire have their very lives at risk. The edict is plain and simply a death note for them. Now remember in chapter 1 we read that the royal orders that go forth from the king in the laws of the Persians and the Medes are such that they cannot be repealed. They can't be revoked. They can't be taken back. So the edict having gone out, there is no chance that it's going to be reversed. The Jews' death date is set in stone, and it gives us the 13th day of the 12th month. It was still in the future, as the decree was sent out in the first month, but the day was etched in stone. And then chapter 3 ends with the king and Haman sitting down to drink while the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So with that, let's read Esther 4, 1 through 11. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes." When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king in these 30 days. So, what we see here is the reaction of Mordecai, the Jews, and Esther to the situation that they find themselves in. This decree hangs over their heads, and they react in mourning and lament. 
So this is the time when their faith is tested. Clearly, a death edict would evoke such a strong emotional reaction. I'm sure that we would react in a similar way. Uh, And that's what we see right here in the text. There seems to be no hope, no chance of survival, just time enough for them to get their affairs in order and await their coming doom. Where can help come from? Where can hope be found? It doesn't seem like there's any help or hope anywhere. Now keep in mind that this decree isn't just for Susa, the citadel, where uh, Esther and Mordecai are, but for the whole Persian Empire. It covers all of the places where the Jews were living, whether they stayed in exile or returned home. This edict was for the entire empire. Esther is then told of Mordecai's reaction, how he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and cried out loudly and bitterly. She's distressed that Mordecai is so worked up, so she sends him garments, which Mordecai refused to accept. Esther seems oblivious to what's happened. Even in her high position, she doesn't seem to know that this decree has gone forth. So she sends Hathak, one of her servants, to go to Mordecai and find out why he was acting this way, why he was in such distress. And Mordecai told Hathak everything, even the sum of money that Haman said he'd pay to the king's treasuries. He also gave Hathak a copy of the decree so that he could bring it to Esther, explain it to her, and then command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So Hathak relays all of this back to Esther, and she replies by explaining a Persian law that would stop her from going before the king. So Esther explains that if anyone goes to the king without being called, the law is that that person be put to death, except in the very unlikely circumstance that the king extends his scepter to that person. Now, Esther was worried that she'd be killed because the king hadn't called for her in 30 days. Now, because we're familiar with the story, we've read Esther before, it doesn't seem like a very big deal. We know what happens, but... When we, when we think ahead like that, we're in danger of not really understanding the weight of Esther's concern here. Remember who King Ahasuerus was. He was a proud man. He would often overindulge in the delicacies of the kingdom. He would fly off the handle at any circumstance not going his way or any person not obeying his commands. Think back to chapter 1 with Vashti, his queen, whom he removed and found a new queen simply because she wouldn't come before him. And he also promoted Haman, and Haman was the one who put in place this edict in the first place. So, when we think of all those things and the unlikely event of the king actually extending the scepter, that didn't happen often, we can understand where she's coming from. It was no small task for her to appear before him, and thus Esther was worried that she would be killed. The rash decisions of the king, fueled by his burning passions, could very easily spell instant death if Esther decided to approach him. So her concern was valid, and she was right to think that if she did this, she would die. Now, in life, we often find ourselves in tough situations. Things look bad, and we don't know what to do. It doesn't seem like we have any options. These are times when our faith is tested to its limit. As much as we might think in our contemporary context that life should be all comfortable and happy and we should never have to put in any work or worry about anything, 
Uh, I know I'm prone to, prone to that, but that's not the reality. That's not life, <laughs> especially in this sin-broken world. Countless times in the epistles, we have commands that pertain to suffering and trials. For example, James says to count it all joy in James 1 verse 2. Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you in 1 Peter 4.12. And Paul talks about suffering producing virtue in us in Romans 5. So we know that trials will come. We should expect them. We should reject the idea that my life should just be comfortable and happy and I can just have a great time all the time and never face any trials. But the question is, now that we know trials will come, how will we react when they do? In this situation, in the text, the overwhelming immediate reaction was mourning, lamentation, sackcloth, and ashes. This isn't wrong. Often we think that a faithful response to trials is to put on a fake smile, pretend that everything's okay, even though we're really wrestling through some deep, hurting emotions. But that's not the right reaction. Does anyone know what the most common form of psalm in the Psalter is? It's lament. The most common form of psalm in the Psalter is actually lament, lamentation. There's a difference, though, between wallowing in lament and struggle and woe is me and staying stuck in your pity party and moving from lament to hope. Those are two very different things. And what we see in the Psalms of Lament is real engagement with the struggles and issues and trials that are happening, but they always move from that to who God is to hope in him. And so you can be honest with the Lord about how you feel, and we see that quite colorfully in the Lament Psalms, but you must also affirm who he is and then move toward trusting in him. Sometimes we can affirm God's sovereign character in our heads, but not allow that truth to comfort us in our hearts and then pour forth from us in our actions. We must move from whatever current situation or trial or struggle to the unchanging character of God and then to professed faith and hope and trust in him through those things, despite the circumstances. We can question, but we must ultimately trust and hope in the God whom we serve, who is above all things, working out everything for his glory and for our good. And I know it sounds great to say that, and we can maybe all say, yes, next time I go through something tough, that's what I'm going to do. I'll pray about it, I'll engage with God deeply, I'll remember who God is and what he's done, and then I will move towards trusting in him no matter what. But when the rubber hits the road, it is difficult. But if we don't know the word, we're not going to be able to do that. If we know the word, we'll be able to engage with who God is and then move through that lament process to hope and trust in him. So, how do you react when your faith is tested? I want you to think about that honestly. How do you react when your faith is tested? Do you sit and wallow in the depths of despair from your circumstances? Or do you struggle in faith and move toward trust in the Almighty God? Trials will come, we know that, and we will react, whether that's in fear or in faith. We may not understand the situation, but we know who our God is, 
and we know that we can fully and completely trust him. So to this point in the text, the faith of Mordecai, Esther, and the Jews has been tested. But what will come of it? What will be their ultimate decision as they work through these deep emotions? Now this next section, 12 through 17, is where we see faith resolved. Let's read. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So, we see there, remember at the end of verse 11, Esther explains that Persian law, I can't go before King Ahasuerus, I will die. That is a death sentence. But Mordecai, in these next verses, is not happy with that response of Esther. And so Esther's people tell Mordecai what she said, but he doesn't accept it. He instead exposes her faulty reasoning and the fear that she has allowed into her decision-making So Mordecai makes three points in his reply. First, even though you're in the king's palace, don't think that you will escape any more than all the other Jews of the kingdom. You will be found out and also killed. And so this point here that Mordecai makes shows that Esther's silence won't save her from death. She might think that going before the king will kill her, but if she doesn't, she's going to die still anyway. Number two, God will not allow his people to be destroyed. So if you don't help, deliverance will still arise, but from somewhere else. So Mordecai's faith here is on display, his faith in the covenant God. Mordecai knows who God is. He knows the promises that God has made. And so Mordecai knows that Haman's plot to extinguish and make all of the Jews extinct will not ultimately be successful. So this great faith of Mordecai is what keeps him hopeful and steadfast through these times. He knows what God has said. He knows who God is. And so then that helps him to make proper decisions and think through Esther's situation. And then number three, Mordecai says, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's one of my favorite lines in in these chapters. It is so good. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So there, Mordecai believes that it's no mere coincidence that Esther is in her royal position. He doesn't explicitly state it, but underlying all of the seemingly impossible events that we've seen already up to this point that allowed Esther to become queen is some sort of providence moving history forward. God, of course, is the one orchestrating all of those events. So with this threefold reply to Esther, Mordecai extinguishes her excuse for inaction, encourages Esther with his faith, 
and then calls on Esther to see the reality behind the events of her life. God is at work. Esther, the only one who could help the Jews, didn't think that she could. Mordecai, however, saw the intricacies of the events of their lives and was instrumental in bringing Esther to her faith-filled resolve. Now, after Mordecai's reply, listen to what Esther says. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So we see there, Esther was convinced. Mordecai's faith spurred Esther on to resolve in her faith to act and not be mired in doubt and fear into silence. Esther was beginning to see how God could be using her in her unique position to bring about the salvation of God's people. Salvation would come, but Esther had a choice to act in faith and be involved in God's salvation or to stay stuck in doubt and fear and silence, perishing along with her father's house before the salvation arrived. I want to ask you, believer, where has God placed you? In Esther, we saw him providentially working and moving to bring Esther into this royal position. And then we see, who knows whether or not you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We can see it all culminate in this salvation that God has planned for his people. So I want to ask you, in what areas of your life are you to stand firm in faith and fight for the truth? Where has God placed you? Think in your own life about God's sovereignty and providence. We've been tracking with Esther and Mordecai. We've seen God work. And even through people's sin, God providentially works to fulfill his purposes. His plans can't be thwarted by sins of believers or unbelievers. So in your everyday life, just as in Esther, God is sovereign. He is providentially working. Did you just get a promotion? Great. That's awesome. How can you serve God faithfully in that position? Along with this promotion, did you just discover that your boss is involved in shady and illegal financial dealings? Ooh. Will you act in faith at the potential cost of your job or career or in order to serve the true king? Or will you lie down in fear and anxiety, trying as hard as possible to shade your eyes just to keep your job? We won't always face earth-shattering dilemmas like Esther, where a whole entire nation is at risk of death. But many big decisions will come at us that can change the course of our lives, whether we act or fail to act. And there is always a right response of faith. Even in the everyday, big decisions and big events aside, God has placed specific people in your life who need to hear the gospel. Family, friends, coworkers, your boss, that one random dude at the gym who always asks you to spot him, or whoever. Everyone, or every single day, we have that choice to walk in faith, to fulfill God's commands in our lives, or to shrink back in fear, anxiety, and doubt. And so I just want to ask you to evaluate that, those areas of your life, family, school, work, friends, all of those things, and take an in inventory. Have you been faithful in all of those things? It can be tough looking back at some areas of our lives and digging up some of those faithless moments that we've had, but 
It can move us forward. We can learn from those things and be encouraged to uh, act in faith next time. And at this point in the story, the Jews needed a mediator. Things were looking terrible. There was an irrevocable decree of death in place, and all hope was lost. Almost. Esther decided, she resolved in her faith, that she would step in and mediate for the Jews before King Ahasuerus. And the truth is, we all need a mediator before the true king, God himself. We've broken his law, falling short, and deciding to live in open rebellion and sin against him. The punishment for this rebellion against God is death. But far from the unwarranted death decree from Haman, the death decree for sinners is perfectly just and perfectly right. It's the deserved penalty for the way we've chosen to live our lives in rebellion to God. Romans 6.23 states that the wages of sin is death. And none of us, not one of us, is able to reconcile ourselves to God. Much like the Jews, we are in need of someone to mediate for us, to save us from the penalty of death that we have incurred, rightly, by our sin. But there's good news. All hope is not lost. Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son, came to the earth and lived a sinless life, perfectly submissive to God's law. And even though he was innocent, he was beaten, he was mocked, and he was crucified. He bore our sins in his body on the cross and suffered the full wrath of God against sin. He died and he was buried. He took the decree of death that we incurred because of our sin. He didn't deserve it, but he paid this penalty for us sinners. Through his death, he, Jesus has secured salvation for all those who would believe in his name. The eternal son came to the earth lived a sinless life, took on the full weight of sin, drank the cup of God's wrath in our place, and died the death we deserve. And because of his sacrifice, we are set free from our death penalty when we repent and believe in what Christ has done. Just as Christ was raised on the third day from the dead, we are then raised from spiritual death to spiritual life with him. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you're a believer today, we can rejoice. We can worship him. That's what we sing about. If you're a non-believer today, I would encourage you to take heed to these words. Sinners without Christ have a just and right death penalty. But Christ has come. Christ has come and he is the mediator that you need. If you repent and believe in his name, he will raise you along with him. And then you can sing along with us about the amazing God that we serve and the living hope that we have. Jesus is the ultimate mediator, the only one capable of saving sinners. If you're not a believer, hear this. God calls for repentance and faith. To repent means to turn away from sin, turning to God in faith. Paul writes in Romans 10.10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You need a mediator or you face certain death. 
God, in his infinite mercy, has provided the ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ. Don't waste any more time. So I ask you, will you repent and will you believe? If you want to discuss this more, this is central to everything that we do here at church. Then speak with any of the pastors or elders or myself, and we would love to dive deeper into the gospel, into what Christ has done, into what that means for you. So just ask. Now, believers, hear me. Your neighbor, your coworkers, your boss, the people of your community, they all need a mediator before God. Are you sharing with them the good news about Jesus, the ultimate mediator, and what he did on behalf of sinners? Or have you been scared into silence? So at this point, Esther has become resolved in her faith. And now we see her faith in action. Let's read 5, 1 through 8. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now, Esther had become resolved in her faith in her conversation with Mordecai, which led her now to act in faith. Here, she does the dangerous, daring move of coming before the king unannounced. And like I already mentioned, in all likelihood, based on who the king was, how long he'd seen her, how the laws and courtly procedures worked in the kingdom, she probably would normally have been killed. But, miracle, the king extended his scepter. Esther acted in faith, and God moved to do the seemingly impossible, and he gave Esther favor in the sight of the king. Before this point, Esther had no plan. She didn't think that it was even possible for her to help. She thought she would die. But now, we see her implement a strategy before the king to secure the lives of her people. And so we need to ask, where did this plan come from? First, she was too scared to do anything. She didn't think she'd even get an audience with the king, and then now all of a sudden, she's not just asking for what she wants straight up. She has this whole plan planned out, and she's putting it into action. So where did it come from? It came from the Lord. She resolved in her faith that she would act, and then her, Mordecai, and the Jews of Susa fasted, which implies prayer also, and then she put her faith into action. 
Again, we might normally expect her to go straight in, say what she wants. She got the audience, so she better not push it, right? But it wouldn't be that easy. So she invited the king and Haman to a banquet that same day. And when they finished that banquet, the king knew that Esther had not risked her life like that just for a dinner date, so he asked her again what her request was. Rather than taking the time at this point, the second time, to come out with her request, she invites him to yet another banquet the following day, saying that at that point she would give her request to the king. Now this strategy is pretty clever. Just take your fingers and count how many times the king publicly promised to fulfill her request. First, he did so from his throne, in the throne room, when she initially came before him. Second, he did so at the first banquet. And then, as we'll see later, the third time would come at the banquet the next day. So this set the king up for public embarrassment if he did not grant Esther's request after three public requests, or public offers, sorry. He offered to fulfill that request. We won't go to that next banquet today. That'll be a future sermon. But we have begun to see how God is working for the salvation of the Jews through Esther, his faithful servant. Her faith was tested when the decree fell. Her faith was resolved when she deliberated with Mordecai and they discussed the issue. And then she put her faith into action before King Ahasuerus. I've said this a couple times already, but hard times and big decisions will come before us. Times when we're faced with the dilemma to either act in faith or cower in fear. How are you preparing yourself to do the former? How is your daily time spent in the word and in prayer? Are you seeking God in the good times so that when the bad times come, you still know who he is, you know his character, you know what he's done? We can't work through those difficult emotions moving towards faith and hope and trust in God if we don't know who God is. So in the good times, don't let that stop you from being in the word, from being in prayer, from communing with God, because that is what's going to carry you through when things do get rough. And now I want you to consider again the places that God has placed you and ask, how can I put my faith into action? It's one thing to, right now, resolve your faith and say, yes, I'm going to stand firm and act in faith, but then when crunch time comes, not to act. But it's another thing to say you have faith and then to follow through and demonstrate it when the time comes. Salvation is by faith alone, but genuine faith is always accompanied by action. So where has God placed you? How can you be faithful in your family, in your community, in your workplace, in your school? Sometimes, like Esther, we will have to face larger-than-life decisions which could dramatically alter the course of our lives and the course of the lives of others. But we also have a chance to display our faith every single day in the ordinary rhythms of our life. One of the main ways we do that, as I've mentioned briefly already, is sharing the gospel by obeying Jesus' command in the Great Commission, where he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How faithful are you in sharing the gospel? I always hate it when a preacher asks that, because that's one of the places I struggle. It's one of those questions that always makes me uncomfortable, 
it sets me on edge because I know oftentimes I am not faithful to do that. It's a tough one, but think again about what's coming for those who are in rebellion against God and don't know him, those who haven't repented and believed. There is a death decree for sin, and there's one mediator who can save. Think about eternity and about the greatest need of the non-believer. It's Christ, the ultimate mediator. Will you preach the gospel to them? Will you act in faith or remain silent and dormant out of fear? Who here has heard the quote, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary? That's a pretty popular one, pretty common. Pastor Trevor has talked about it before, but I wanted to address it again because it's one of those ones that is really sneaky um, and it's been a comfort to many Christians about evangelism because uh, it proposes the notion that the way I live my life is enough to make someone want Christ without using words, just by the way I live just by the way I carry myself, just by the attitude that I have, the integrity that I have. But let me tell you something, and it's something that I need to remind myself of often. It is always necessary to use words to share the gospel. Always. People can't come to Christ if they don't hear about Christ. In an earlier generation, this quote maybe possibly made more sense, since most people had heard the gospel and either accepted it and become a Christian or rejected it. And so everyone had at least heard it so they could at least maybe connect the dots for you, for themselves, based on your life. But now, our culture largely has not actually heard the gospel presented. And if they have, there's a good chance that it was presented inaccurately or poorly. And our culture is no longer Christian. So we can't assume that they've heard the gospel and can match it up to the way we choose to live our lives. This quote has disarmed many Christians, made them complacent in evangelism, myself included, and the enemy is very happy when we use a nice little Christian quote to disobey Christ's command. Are people going to come and ask you about the joy that you have, or the peace that you have, or the integrity that you have, or the way you carry yourself? No, people don't do that. Maybe there's the odd one that does that, but by and large, people don't do that. If you're still waiting for that day to come, even in spite of all this, it's very, very, very unlikely. We often need to take that initiative. So, I have good news though. There is a surefire way to be 100% positive that you're sharing the gospel. I think some of you might be able to think, you know what I'm gonna say. It's sharing the gospel with your words. That is the surefire way to know that you are obeying the Great Commission and following what Christ has commanded us to do. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul also says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Actually preaching the gospel with our words to people is essential. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be tactful, shouldn't be smart, shouldn't build relationships with people and be clever about how you share the gospel. I'm just saying that silence cannot be your evangelism tactic. It can't. 
and our lives should be in accord with the gospel, that part of the quote, the sentiment that our lives should be living pictures of the gospel in our attitudes and in our actions is great. But in terms of sharing the gospel and fulfilling the Great Commission, it falls short. And it is that verbal presentation that's necessary. So, you've heard this before. Trevor's talked about it. Just stop using that Christian quote to justify your disobedience. So I know it's hard. I know it's scary. I've used that quote in my own life to console myself in my disobedience. But hear me when I say this, and we saw it in the book of Esther, God works when we step out in faith. Esther thought she'd be killed, and rightly so, but God was providentially working. We might think that we will be ridiculed and mocked, and there's a good chance we will be. There's a good chance it'll be tough, but God is with us, and God is working. God uses his servants to bring his people to himself. And we often, even if we are ridiculed and mocked or laughed out of the room, we don't know what's going to come down the line in each subsequent gospel presentation for that person. We don't know how many gospel presentations they've heard. We don't know how close they are to coming to Christ. But one tangible way that each and every one of us can put our faith into action every day is to preach the gospel just as we've been commanded to do. So I want to ask, will you act in faith each day, big decisions and little, or shrink back in fear and sin and remain silent? We must stand and put our faith into action. Now let's zoom back a little bit. Esther and Mordecai give incredible examples of faith in difficult times. Their faith was tested when the decree was sent forth, they resolved to stand firm despite, in their faith despite the situation. And then Esther's faith is seen in action before the king. Mordecai's faith spurred on Esther's when she didn't think anything could be done. But I want to just focus on how Mordecai knew that there was going to be deliverance. He said in verse 14, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. So that's interesting. It shows his faith. And he knew that. He knew ultimately that Haman could not succeed in wiping out the Jews because of God's covenant with his people. And how can we know that God's good purposes will prevail through every dark trial in our lives? When we come up against those things and we're working through those emotions, how can we know that things in the end will be all right? God has likewise made a covenant with us through Christ in which he has given us an imperishable and unfading inheritance. No matter what happens on this earth, whether we are tortured, killed, mocked, ridiculed, or anything, nothing can take that inheritance from us. And so we have that sure hope of inheritance from Christ to be with him forever, no matter what goes on on the earth. Listen to how Peter describes it in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 3-9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice that. According to his mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is guarding us by his power through faith as we act in faith, as we keep our faith in him. And even if all things go as wrong as possible on the earth, we have that inheritance. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Passages like 1 Peter, passages like Romans 8, can be those steadfast anchors for us when trials come. But if we don't know the word, it'll be easy to shrink back in fear and react in faithlessness. Know the word. So in light of all of these things, I've been talking for a while, when your faith is tested, will you wallow in self-pity or remind yourself of who God is and what he's done and then put your hope and trust in him? When you come to the decision point on whether to stand in faith or cower in fear, will you resolve to trust in your God and stand tall? In times of difficulty and trouble, will you remain dormant or put your faith into action? God uses his people to accomplish his purposes in the world. Will you be used for his glory by acting in obedience and faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. This text, though old, it's far from being irrelevant. Lord, your word is an encouragement to us when our faith is tested and instills confidence in us when we don't know what to do. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, guiding us as we navigate difficult situations. We know trials will come. We know hardship and difficult situations and lose-lose situations will come. But Lord, we ask that you give us the faith that we need to stand firm through any trial and to act faithfully in difficult situations. Instill boldness in us to share the gospel with those around us, no matter the consequences. Bring to mind people in our lives who need the gospel, who we can be faithful to share with. Go before us. Remind us of your sovereign hand providentially working and guiding through the ordinary and the extraordinary events of our lives. We ask for your favor and we ask that you would work in our hearts, forgive us for the times that we have been faithless, and move us forward in faith, trusting in your love. We thank you for the inheritance that we have and that no matter what happens, you gain the victory. Everything that happens is for your glory and for our ultimate good. And we trust you, Lord. We pray these things through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus for the glory of the Father. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. 
For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.